please turn your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. We're making our way through Samuel uh, this year as we talk about the, the covenant king. And we're in the first section, finishing up the first section, going to the second section as we go from a king, uh, desiring a king like the nations to getting a king like the nations. As you turn there, just a couple things that I want you to, to be thinking about. One, just again, want to encourage you to come out this weekend to be a part of our, our conference, excited about Don Whitney being here, he's just a, a great uh, a great teacher. I've learned a lot from him about the spiritual disciplines, and uh, you're going to really enjoy getting to, to know him this, this weekend. Uh, there's a bookstore here, excited about that as well, uh, so be sure to, to come th- this weekend and, and do uh, that. Also, I want to encourage you to be to, about a ministry uh, for, for you to con- potentially consider being a part of, the, the jail ministry. Uh, this is a, a great opportunity for you on a Sunday morning to, to get to spend some, some time uh, with some men who are just in need of encouragement and uh, wanting to study God's Word. And this is a, a great ministry opportunity for, for some of you men to be, to be a part of during the Sunday school hour. And if you want to find out more information about that, you can talk to Tom Button or, or Chuck Boyson. Uh, just a really neat opportunity guys provided some, some people in our church to be a part of. So Consider prayerfully if, if God might be calling you to participate in that. We know that the, the Lord uh, desires us to care for those who are in need, and there's just great, uh, great harvest opportunity there. I also am excited this morning to give you a quick update on some things that are happening with our uh, church replanting work in the Chillicothe, Rome area. Uh, The elders have formed a review committee to consider the position of church plant pastor. Church plant pastor. So this is a position we're going to bring to the church for approval, first of all, via the budget. So when you approve the the budget, Lord willing, in April, you'll be approving this position. And then we're also going to bring a a man for you to consider at some point and have you vote to affirm that man for that position. Okay, so there's two ways you'll have the opportunity to speak into this position. The job has several components. One, they're going to be working with the existing Rome church, so the, the people who are part of that church that we've uh, hopefully you've grown to, to know and to love, going to be helping them make the transition and helping get their input and, and seeing what their needs are, and so he, he's going to be working with them. Secondly, working with our church, so uh, we have some needs, right? We want to recruit people to the work. We want to recruit shepherds. We want to determine a, a timeline. We don't have a timeline right now laid out, and so we want to kind of work through a timeline, develop a core team, answer questions we have, and really also just to get us excited about evangelism and, and church planting and, and revitalization and replanting, we want uh, that, that uh, man to be encouraging us to think beyond just this, but Lord willing, this is going to be a ministry we continue and have the opportunity to, to do this work in other places as well. So we want someone to be helping us think about this as a church. That would be one of their responsibilities. Also, uh, to work with people in that community, uh, to work with churches and individuals, and the the community will be be replanting. And then also, uh, then the the last obvious part of the the job would be to to start the church, to start a a new work that God would be uh, hopefully a blessing. Now, as is our custom, if you've been here for a while, you know, our custom is to hire staff from within the body to, to raise men up for, for different positions. And so that's what we are hoping to do here. And we have one candidate we've asked the review committee to examine, and that's Jordan Embry. 
And we are just at the beginning of this process. And so we, the leadership, the body, the Embry family are all prayerfully considering uh, Jordan and his family's calling to this. So we're giving you the update now uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it's been a while since we said something. And wanted you to know that uh, we are kind of working behind the scenes to continue to this, this work. So I want to give you that update. We want you to be praying. I pray for the review committee. I pray for Jordan and his family as they're prayerfully considering the work and God's calling. Pray for the elders. And then pray for others in our church to be called to this ministry. We want to see some, some families go and, and be a part and individuals go and be a part of, of this work. So be praying for that. Be praying for the community. Uh, and we also want to tell you this a little early so you, you have some opportunities to get to know Jordan. Uh, he's going to be teaching Sunday school class next week in uh, Wayne and Dave's Sunday school class. And then two weeks from today, he'll be preaching here in our Sunday morning service. So we're excited about that too. So again, we're at the beginning of a new phase of this work. And so keep praying, keep asking the Lord to, to bless our, 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 uh, our endeavors in the coming months and he would help us as we discern things like a timeline and, and different things. So it's exciting. Just want to give you that, that update. Well, we're in 1 Samuel, and we're looking at chapters 8 through 11. We began looking at this passage two weeks ago. And just a reminder, as we come into the, these, these passages in Samuel, be reading ahead. I'm not going to go through every verse. We're going to go through every chapter and, and paragraph. But there's going to be some things that I assume you've, you've read a little bit as we go through this overview of, of Samuel this year. So in, let's see, next week we'll be dealing with a conference message, and then uh, two weeks Jordan's going to be uh, bringing us God's Word, and then three weeks we'll be looking at the rest of chapter 11 and 12. So you can read ahead on that uh, as, as the Lord gives you that ability over the next few weeks. But we're here. We're in chapter 8. We're going to read some of the, a couple paragraphs from these chapters. And so if you're able to, Stand with me as we read God's word together. Chapter 8, 1 Samuel, and Samuel has just warned concerning the, the dangers of a king. And now the, the people, after he's warned about the dangers of the king they desire, he, he's, he's, he's warned them. Now they give the response beginning in verse 19. It says this, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard, had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul. Saul and Samuel meet, and then Samuel at the end of the chapter says, I have some words to say to you, the word of the Lord. And then you come to chapter 10, and Samuel anoints Saul as king. And then as we come to verse 17 of 1 Samuel 10, this proclamation of Saul as king takes place. Verse 17 of chapter 10. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. 
Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Merites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, they, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There was none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would continue to bless our time of worship. We thank you for your great kindness to us. We thank you for the kindness of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, that we can have a relationship with you through faith in him and him alone for our salvation. And we thank you that you have made as we've said, and as Mark has shared again, that, that you have made your church one in him. We pray that we would exercise that unity by your grace. Change us and mold us into who you desire us to be. We pray this in your son Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. For those of us who are in positions of leadership, our, our ultimate desire should be to glorify God. God in his, his kindness, though, sometimes gives us reminders about what is at stake if we fail. You see, if we, if we fall as shepherds, as parents, as bosses, as school leaders, and yes, as, as pastors, elders in a church, if we fall, the consequences aren't just limited to ourselves. And not just ourselves and our friends or our family. There are, are rippling effects throughout the community of faith that take place when leaders fail in their shepherding. Last week, um, mom sent me a text about her young daughter who she had, her daughter had told her mom she wanted to pray for Pastor Daniel. And she said, well, what do you want to pray for Pastor Daniel? And her daughter says, I want to pray. I want to pray that he's safe. I want to pray that he reads his Bible, and I want to pray that he doesn't get tricked by Satan. It's a pretty good prayer, right? It's, oh, that all of us would be prayed for for those things. God, keep them safe. God, help them to be faithful, to, to stay in God's word. And God, please don't let them be deceived by Satan or their flesh or the world. As we think about our shepherding, it's a gracious reminder when we hear about a, a young girl praying for her pastor. What a gracious reminder of what's at stake in our shepherding. If we stumble in our ministries, it's not just me, it's not just a few people close to me, it's, it's, it's others like the children in our church who are affected. And it's true for all of us. And Jesus had very strong words for those who would cause a little one to stumble, didn't he? said Matthew 18, it'd be better to take a big millstone, wrap it around your neck, and jump into the depths of the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. What I'm saying here is that the stakes are very high. 
as we talk about spiritual shepherding. The stakes are too high for us to fail. Souls of of precious sheep are dependent on us shepherding well. So let's take this seriously, right? Here in in this text, in, in 1 Samuel 8 through the first part of chapter 11, we're looking at the king that Israel gets. It's a king like the nations. It's, what's they, it's what they demand, it's what they want, and it's what they get. And we said, well, okay, why, why do we want to talk about this? Last time we were in 1 Samuel, two weeks ago, we said, well, there's, there's several purposes here. One, we want, to, we want to be prevented from being worldly leaders. Just like here, the, the leader of God's people, his community of, of faith here is a, a king like the nations. As we think about the application for us as, as God's New Covenant people, we don't want to have leaders and shepherds who are like the nations. So we want to be careful in our, in our own hearts and in whatever capacities God has placed us as shepherds, we want to be careful. We also don't want to create structures and systems within a church that would support and, and, and uh, bring about worldly leaders, leaders like the nations. And then finally, we, we recognize this reality. We recognize that God is going to call us at times to other churches. We're going to plant churches. We're going to replant churches. We're going to revitalize churches by God's grace. And some of us are going to be called from this, this church to other bodies. Some of us are going to be called by God from this area to other communities. And so we want to be very careful as we go into churches to, to be aware of what warning signs exist of oppressive leadership, leaders like the nations. And so that's kind of our goal as we go through this. Here's the main idea that we began talking about last time we were in 1 Samuel. Godly leaders point us to Christ. Worldly leaders do not. Godly leaders point us to Christ. Those who are shepherding well are going to point us to the great shepherd. A a king who's a, a king in obedience to God is going to point the people to the ultimate king, King Jesus. A worldly leader, a worldly shepherd is not going to point people to the good shepherd, Jesus. And we talked about kind of a a longer statement, this idea, the core of worldly and oppressive leadership is is a conviction. It's a conviction that leaders exist to be served instead of serving by laying down their lives for others. So that's kind of the, the, the big idea that we're thinking about. Godly leaders are going to point us to Christ. Worldly leaders are not. And we, in whatever capacities of, as leaders God has called us to be, be it, as we talked about last time, CEO of a company or bathroom monitor at a high school, whatever leadership position God has placed you in, you are there not to be served but to serve. And as you serve, what are you doing? You're appointing people to the great shepherd, to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. We began last week kind of talking about several characteristics of oppressive leaders. Number one, we'll go through these quickly, and and I'm going to go through a lot of things quickly this morning, and the beauty is this is on YouTube if you need to kind of rewind and go a little little slower on some of these things. Remember, one, an oppressive leader doesn't look to God's word to grasp the nature of of his ministry. That's the first thing we saw as we went back to Deuteronomy and saw God laying out the designs for a king. Number two, we saw an oppressive leader is sometimes the byproduct of a crisis colliding with an unbelieving heart. So you have this crisis and you have a heart that doesn't have faith that God is going to be faithful. And so as these, as these things collide, what do you have? You have an oppressive leader. That's what people turn to sometimes in times of crisis. Number three, and this is kind of the, the core of what we're looking at. An oppressive leader is, is self-serving. 
Samuel, as he lays out to the people what a king is going to do, what we see is, is he's going to take, 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 and he's going to take. That's what a, an oppressive leader does. He, he takes and takes and takes and takes. He's self-serving. Now, we, that brings us to point four. Number four that we begin to look at this morning, an oppressive leader is demanded by worldly people. You say, what do you mean? An oppressive leader doesn't just exist by themselves. Usually there's a, a structure in place that, that encourages this type of leadership. Not always, but, but very often, and that's certainly what happens here. Look at verse 19 and, and notice what God's word tells us. Samuel has just warned them, look, this is what a, a, a king like the nations that you say you want, this is what a king like the nations is going to do. Take, 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 take. That's, that's, that's the warning. Then we come to verse 19. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. That word obey is the Hebrew word shema. You may have heard of the shema, the great shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel. Shema, hear, listen, obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema means to, to listen with the idea of, of obedience and, and taking in the words that someone is, is telling you with a desire to, to do what they're telling you, to take it into consideration, to bring it into your heart. Oftentimes, whenever I was growing up, mom and dad would, would tell me things, and I would, I would listen, like I would hear the words they were saying, but I wouldn't shema, I wouldn't, I wouldn't listen with an idea that I'm going to obey what they're telling me to do or really take their counsel seriously. As a teenager, I often thought that I knew better than mom or dad. Uh, for example, my dad would, would often tell me, hey, you need to come out with me and let's go out to the garage. I'm going to be working on the car and, and you need to learn how to, to work on the car. I, I heard what he was saying, but I didn't shema. In my mind, if a young teenager, I thought, well, I'm going to be so wealthy uh, when I'm your age, dad. I'll just be buying new cars all the time, so I don't think I need to really worry about learning how to work on a car. I should have shamad, right? And that, that was a mistake on my part, right? Shema, you listen, you, you decide to obey and, and, and listen to the words that someone says. The people don't shema. They, they refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. They say, listen to what they say. No. No. We're going to have a king. And listen to the, the three things that they say are the reasons they want a king. And, and they say they want status, they want strength, and they want security. They say status, number one. That we, we want to be like all the nations. We want status. Two, strength. We want a, a king that can judge us. And so they want this, this king that can have the authority to tell them what to do. At this time, authority often resided in, in local leaders, and so these local leaders would have the responsibility of, of judging and deciding what would happen and, and how to resolve difficulties and things like that. And these, these leaders are saying, we don't want that. We want a strong, powerful man that can, can rule over us. So we want to be, we want status, we want strength, and we want security. See, the third thing there, judge and go out before us and fight our battles. So instead of looking to the Lord for their status, their identity, and their, their strength and their security, they say, we want a, a, a person, this, this man that we can look to, and he is going to be our status, and he's going to be our strength, and he's going to be our security. 
they deliberately create a structure that not only allows for an oppressive leader, but demands it. Now, notice what they don't say. They don't say, we want a leader who will help us love and obey God to walk in his statutes. They say, no, we want a man to give us status. We want a man to give us strength. We want a a man that's going to give us security. The principle is this. A, A community of faith, a community of faith often gets the oppressive leaders it demands. He said, well, what what do you mean? How does that play out in the church today? Let me give you a couple thoughts here. Michael Kruger in the book Bully Pulpit says this. He says, let me state the problem simply. Some of the leaders we are producing as a church, some of the leaders we are producing, and if we are honest, some of the leaders we are wanting have characteristics that are either absent from or completely opposed to the list of leadership characteristics laid out in Scripture. We have tolerated and have even celebrated precisely the kinds of leaders Jesus warned us against. We insist that we know better. We would rather, listen to this, we would rather have a leader who will beat up our enemies than one who will tenderly care for the sheep. In other words, what? We don't shema. We haven't listened to what God says. He desires leaders in the church to be or leaders in the home to be or leaders in whatever context to be. We don't shema. Now, let me give you, let me flesh this out a little bit more. I'm going to give you some things that I believe we do that contribute to the creation of oppressive leaders in in the church. And and these these go beyond just the church. But let me me give you a, a couple things, five things or so. Number one, we celebrate celebrities as evangelical Christians. Now, by celebrity, I don't, I don't mean famous necessarily. I, I mean those who are prominent. We, we purposefully elevate them above ourselves. Again, Kruger says this, given the church's propensity to mimic the culture, uh, some churches want their own franchise player. They want someone who's strong and dynamic and inspiring. They want someone exceptional, a charismatic visionary who can can lead the way. And and pastors who are like this, shepherds who are like this, are given special privileges and entitlements. They're given a voice and authority that exceed those around them. This is not healthy, brothers and sisters. So we celebrate celebrities. Another thing we do is we want bigger and better as Christians. We want bigger and better we believe wrongly that our local church is, is better than all other local churches. Or if it's not better than all other churches, we want it to be better. That's not even a thing, right? Like being, better, being a better church than another local, that's not even a, a real thing. All true churches are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we just sang it multiple times. We said it multiple times. We prayed it multiple times. There's one church. We're not better than another church. We're the same church. We're the local expression of God's church, but we're not better. It's not even a thing. We aren't content with being a faithful church. We want to be the best church. And when we look at coming to a church, because we want bigger and better, 
We don't, we don't come to a church saying, okay, I'm a member of a body. I'm a body part, part of this larger body. And so I'm going to come to a local church and say, okay, how, how, does, how do I function as part of this body of Christ? Instead, we're like kids at an ice cream counter. You know what? I kind of want chocolate chip cookie dough. This is what I want. I'm a consumer. We want bigger and better. Another thing we do is we, we value giftedness over godliness. Because we want bigger and better, we value giftedness over godliness. I was talking with a, a pastor one time. He was talking about hiring on a, a staff person and a, another pastor. And he said, as we were kind of thinking through this as a church, originally we were asking questions like, okay, how can we have a, a dynamic leader? And how can he be a, a leader that draws other people to himself? And how can he do all And he says, we, we stepped back and we realized, man, we are asking questions that aren't even questions about biblical qualities of a pastor. And he stepped back and they, they made some much better decisions as a result of that. Another caution here, things we do that demand, that are, besides that we're demanding a, a shepherd like the nations, is we want, uh, we refuse to hold leaders accountable. We refuse to hold leaders accountable in any sort of meaningful way. Now, I'll say this. All of us in positions of leadership, pastors, Sunday school teachers, parents, uh, we need grace, right? We need people to be very gracious to us because we are not the good shepherd. But part of the way that God shows his grace to us is through accountability. Providing us with people who can speak biblically into our lives. If we're a boss or a, the, the student council body president, whatever position of shepherding we're in, accountability is part of God's grace to us. And if we refuse to hold leaders accountable in any sort of meaningful way, what are we doing? We are demanding a shepherd like the nations, an oppressive leader. And then finally, another thing that we do here, a way in which we demand a worldly leader, is we create unbiblical expectations for shepherds. Now, I have debated a lot about what to say. If you could see my notes, it looks like, you know, some kid got a hold of him and just started scribbling things. I mean, I've, I've crossed things out and put things back in. He, I'm uncomfortable talking about how hard it is to be a pastor sometimes for a lot of reasons. One, ministry is a gift, right? Uh, and especially being a pastor at, at Bethany Community Church is an unbelievable gift. Um, also, all ministry is difficult, not just pastoral ministry, and so all ministry is difficult, and, and so you don't want to highlight one ministry being difficult than another. But all that to say, based on what I'm seeing in the church at large, I, I, I'm going to say a couple things here. There are people in communities of faith, and this is, this is not true at Bethany Community Church, although potentially at times there could be seeds of this, the church at large, the evangelical church, there, there are people in communities of faith who are unknowingly and unintentionally contributing to a church culture that is killing their shepherds spiritually. The unbiblical expectations they have for shepherds are, are killing them spiritually, unintentionally a lot of times. Uh, Marcus Honeysett writes this in his book, powerful leaders. He says the pressure that pastors face to produce visible results can diminish the spiritual depth 
in them that should mark a Christian leader. And if not very careful, leaders can be affirmed for the things that come at the expense of spiritual depth and prayer. Not only is he, you know, he writes, not only is it common to find many people in ministry working three block days all the time, morning, afternoon, and evening, but they have to work when family and friends are relaxing. And unlike others, they, they don't feel like they can spend weekends visiting wider family. And, and, and if a, a wife sees this and her, and her husband sees him gone all the time, she feels bad saying things because she's already under depression. She doesn't want to make it worse. And so that kind of compounds the problem. It's not just pastoral ministry, I know. Unrealistic, unbiblical expectations can affect us in, in all different areas. But Honeyset goes on. He says, the workload of a pastor perpetually feels unrelenting and infinite. Congregations almost, always under, under, congregations almost always underestimate how long it takes to do things or how much is reasonable to expect, meaning that many pastors work at least a day, a week more than anyone else thinks they work. So sometimes instead of just one day, it's two days in a week. It's exhausting. No. <laughs> one pastor described it as being expected to be infinitely elastic. Um, there's more. He says, uh, this close, leaders start to think that being pressured and burdened, being the most heavily burdened person in the church is a measure about whether or not they're being faithful. And he says, and this is the critical point, pastors are affirmed and applauded for doing so. Churches admire the sacrificial commitment that they have required. Now, this is not an excuse for pastors to abuse their authority. But what I'm saying is sometimes, and, and, and as you have opportunity to talk with friends who are at churches where, and you hear them saying things about their expectations for shepherds, and you're like, but that doesn't seem very biblical. Talk to them about that. Because I'll, I'll tell you, over the last few years, the, the, the things I've seen in, 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 in churches where friends are at or, or where, where people are hurting or, or, or pastors are, are doing some, whatever things, uh, people would be helped by thinking through this. Hey, hey, what are we really wanting our pastor to do? What does God want our pastor to do? Let's, let's hold them accountable to that, and let's not try to be a, a church like the, the world, a church that the world's going to celebrate, the bigger, better church. Let's be a faithful church. Okay, that's enough. Next characteristic, an oppressive leader. An oppressive leader also doesn't always start off bad and isn't always as bad as they can be. Now, let me just kind of go through chapter 9 kind of quickly here. Saul is finally introduced, right? And as we read the story of Saul, it's hard to see how, how is this guy going to be all that bad? He, he doesn't seem like a bad guy. And in, indeed, the, the things he's doing here don't, don't seem all that bad. He just seems like a normal guy. As the story begins, we're introduced to him. He says that he uh, has a prominent family. He's a Benjamite. So we, we know that since he's from the tribe of Benjamin, he's not going to be the covenant king, since that's going to come from the tribe of Judah. But we, we see that externally, he, he's prominent, he, he's wealthy. And it says in verse 2, he, there wasn't a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So this is a, a good-looking guy. Chapter 9 goes on. His dad loses the donkeys, and so... Saul and his servant go on this, this journey through the northern region of the hills of Ephraim, and they're looking for the, the donkeys, can't find them. His servant begins to suggest that they should go ask a man of God. This is in verses 6 through 14. God, verses 15 through 17, has already told Samuel that he's going to be bringing the future king of Israel. 
and that he's going to use Saul to deliver his people. Then Samuel meets Saul, and Samuel tells him, hey, the donkeys have been found. They sit down to eat, and the chapter ends with Samuel telling him he's going to speak to him the word of God. Now, just real quickly, here's the principle here as we think about this. Oppressive leaders aren't always cartoon villains, right? Sometimes we have this idea that, okay, an oppressive leader is, is just going to be this, this horrible and abusive person, and, and we, we, we think about them in that, in that way as these, these cartoon villains. And in reality, it's helpful for us to realize leaders aren't, shepherds aren't in two buckets, good and bad, all the time. First of all, we're all bad in terms of the reality that we need God's grace. But in terms of even, even leaders who aren't in line with what God desires them to be, there's, there's a spectrum. And it's important to realize this because sometimes you can come, along, come aside a person, you see them doing some bad things, say, okay, this, this isn't how God tells a leader to act, but it doesn't mean that they are just completely disqualified from whatever shepherding ministry God has called them to. So, for example, maybe you, you encounter a mom and, and she's just having a hard day and, and she's struggling. You recognize and she recognizes that she's not responding well to her children. And just because she's been oppressive in an instance doesn't mean that she's not qualified to be a mom anymore, right? What does she need? She needs you to come alongside her gently and say, hey, how can I help you? And she, oh, I need a lot of help. I'll see you in a couple hours. Here's my kids, you know. And some of, you, some of you, as you look at others, you just be very careful about judging, right? But it's also helpful for us to realize this because we can look at ourselves sometimes and our shepherd and say, okay, here I am, and yeah, I, I have some problems as a, as a leader, but man, I, I can look down and I can say, over here is a really, I know I'm not where God wants me to be, but man, now that's an oppressive leader over there. And what does that cause us to do? It causes us not to ask ourselves the really hard questions about our own shepherding. Okay, my standard is not how bad the worst leaders are. My standard is what does God want me to be doing as, as, a, as a dad, as a pastor, as a friend? I think that's a helpful thing for us to think through. We want to pray Psalm 139 in our leadership. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. My goal is, is not to be found acceptable by comparing myself to other people, but to say, God, look, this is, this is what I need you to do. Show me. How have I failed you? How can I be more like who you desire me to be? Number six, an oppressive leader is still a leader appointed by God. Now, this is very interesting. An oppressive leader is still a leader appointed by God. Let's walk through a little bit of what happens here in chapter 10. Samuel is with Saul, and he takes this flask of oil, and he pours it on his head, and he says, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of Israel, or the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now, there's some, there's some textual differences. If you're reading NIV, you might not have as much as the ESV has a uh, some of the Hebrew translations are, are some of the Hebrew text is, is missing from some later translations, and that's something you can research on your own. A good study Bible will talk through it. But I, I think all of chapter one of the ESV is, is original. But the bottom line is, and, and the main thing that I want us to grasp from chapter 10 is that Samuel does something very important, important here. 
he anoints Saul as king. He pours oil over him and he anoints him. Now that word anoint is the Hebrew word shamak. It, it's the, or uh, mashak. It's, it's the word we get the Hebrew word Messiah from. The, it's translated Christ, the anointed one. Now why is that so important? From this moment forward, Saul is the anointed one. He is the the, the, the king. And if you don't understand the importance of God anointing Saul as king, you're not going to understand a lot of the tension in the rest of 1 Samuel. You see, as David is on the scene and you have David and Saul contrasted with one another, you're like, man, David is clearly the, the king that the people need. He's the, the, the king after God's own heart. And you've got this guy, Saul. Why don't you just, Saul, get rid of him? And Samuel struggles with just a sorrow of the anointed not obeying God the way that he needs to. And David, as he has these opportunities to, to kill Saul, what does he say over and over again? He says, I, I can't lift up my hand, what? Right, against the Lord's anointed one. You see, the, the king was a picture of the, the future anointed one, the future Messiah, the, the Christ, Jesus. And David recognized that. Saul goes home, and Samuel tells him, as you go home, there's going to be several signs that show that, that you are who God is appointing, that he's with you. There's going to be donkeys that are found. You're going to see these three men. You're going to encounter the prophets. You're going to prophesy. And all those things take place. And so God has confirmed to Saul, you are the anointed one. You're, the, you're going to be the king of my people. You're going to do the things that a king is supposed to do. Saul comes home. He's greeted by his uncle, and he doesn't say anything about any of this. Then that passage that we read, and I heard some of you kind of laugh because it's this, it, it is a little humorous here. During this time of, of casting lots and anointing or announcing who the king is going to be, they narrow it down to Saul. They say, okay, where's Saul? Oh, our king is hiding in the bags. Right? And you say, well, what does that mean? Is, is Saul just like this super humble guy? Hardly. Saul doesn't want to do the things that God has called him to do in this ministry. And so he's, he's shirking the responsibilities that, that God has given him. He's resisting God's anointing and God's appointing. In fact, he, he never fully grasps what it is that God desires him to, be, to do. And again, in, this, in the story, there's this tension. Who's going to lift up their hand against the Lord's anointed? And ultimately, who is it? The one who lifts up his hand against the Lord's anointed is Saul at the end of the story. We'll get to that in the coming months. The principle that I want you to think about here, though, is, is this. There's a danger when we talk about spiritual oppression that we're going to use it to avoid submitting to leaders, right? Now, this is not a one-for-one -one correlation. We're not required to, in a church to submit the same way they are to a king, but, but the, the, the picture here is of, of this anointed one over God's people, and, and so there's this, this way in which a, a person with authority over God's people is to model submission to God, and there's going to be times where a leader doesn't model that. 
Now, for the, the people of the nation of Israel, it was more complicated because they, they had a very narrow way in which they could remove themselves from submission. But what, what I want to say here is, at times, and we see this happen oftentimes, at times, because some leaders abuse their authority, in our own hearts, we can say, okay, I don't want to submit. So God has placed this person in a position of leadership over me. This person isn't a perfect leader, and so I don't want to submit to them. So what we need to do is we need to be very careful. Okay, an oppressive leader at times is still a leader appointed by God, and so I need to be very careful about how I remove myself in a church situation, for example. I need to be very careful about how I remove myself from their spiritual shepherding. Or you think about it more broadly, you have an unreasonable boss. You say, well, I'm, I'm justified in hating them. I'm, a, I'm justified in undermining their work. That's not the case. We need to be very careful as we talk about spiritual oppression. We need to be very careful that we don't just use that as this, this line that allows us not to recognize that God has appointed leaders over us. By way of application, let me, let me help you think through how to respond to spiritual leaders when you fear they may be oppressive. And, and maybe this will help you. Maybe this will help some people that you're ministering to right now. Maybe you have a family member. I've had family members who are in oppressive churches. And let, let me just give you some, some thoughts about how to respond to leaders who may be spiritually oppressive. Number one, recognize the God-given authority of leaders, okay? Recognize that there is a God-given authority to leaders. There's a scope in which they have authority, but it's, it's a real authority. So, okay, I recognize that there are people that God has placed in my life and they, they have this authority. That's, that's one. Number two, when you have a concern, try to specifically and biblically identify the things that concern you. You say, okay, I have, this, I have this situation and I'm not sure if I need to, to be in submission to this person because I think they've, they've overreached their, their scope of authority, so I, I need to respond. Now, what, what, what oppressive leaders can do is whenever you don't have hard facts, they can say, well, you're just being accusatory, you don't have anything specific. So as much as you're able to, try to maybe have a sense of unease. Try to specifically and biblically identify the things that concern you. Now, here are some let me tell you some things that should concern you. If, if there's a lack of transparency, that's going to be a warning sign. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Someone involved, a leader involved in frequent conflicts and, 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 and arguments, is, is, is going to, that's a warning sign that they're an oppressive leader. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Maybe there's high levels of conflicts that surround a person. Okay, that's, that's a warning sign. Or maybe there's a low number of leaders around that leader. Proverbs eleven fifteen, where there's no guidance, the people falls. But in abundance of counselors, there's, there's safety. Another warning sign is you look at the people that they're in leadership over, and there's fearful sheep. There's fearful people in the church. There's, their kids are fearful. The, their employees are fearful. That's a sign of an oppressive leader. They're defensive when confronted on their sin. They, they fail to recognize that they are in need of the, the means of grace for sanctification. So, for example, you're, you have this leader, and, and this leader isn't availing themselves of the same means of grace that all of us need. 
That's, that's a warning sign in a leader if they don't think that they need the same grace that all of us need. Remember a few years ago, se- several years ago now, someone kind of confronted me on this. They said, it was another pastor, and, and he said, hey, so when you're worshiping on a Sunday morning, how, how's that going for you? you? You seem like a pretty high-strung guy. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, he said, no, like when you're singing, on a Sunday morning, are, are you enjoying that time of worship? I said, well, oftentimes, no. I'm thinking about, I'm nervous. I'm thinking about having to preach. I'm thinking about this. He goes, you need, you need God's means of grace. You need to, to worship. You need, to, you need that just as much as anyone else. Uh, an oppressive leader doesn't recognize they need the means of grace like anybody else. Prayer, reading God's word, worshiping with the saints, that's a very dangerous place for a leader to be, to not recognize that. Or they demand benefits instead of serving other people. But those, now, the presence of one of those doesn't mean that a person is an oppressive leader disqualified from ministry or disqualified from whatever, whatever position of leadership. But those are some, some warning signs, biblically, that we see in oppressive leadership. So, recognize the God-given authority of leaders. Try to specifically and biblically identify the things that are concerning you. The number three, ask God to reveal your heart to you first, right? Say, God, just help me understand my heart motivation here and, and give me wisdom about the, the types of issues that I'm dealing with. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm overly sensitive to something. Maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding something. Maybe I'm, I just have a bitter attitude in my heart and, and this isn't that big of an issue. My, again, Michael Kruger in his book, Bully Pulpit, says this, that, that sometimes we confuse abuse with just an unfriendly person, Right? Or someone that just doesn't get along well with other, uh, with, uh, with, with people in, in terms of just being kind of awkward. They accidentally hurt someone. Or they, maybe you see a leader confronting sin and you say, oh, that's abusive. No, that's just a, a shepherd trying to confront someone they love about sin. So we, we want to ask God to show us our heart attitudes. Now, a fifth thing, though, I'm sorry, a fourth thing is to get wise counsel from others. Maybe you need to start with someone else and say, hey, this, this is not gossip, by the way, right? This is you trying to biblically deal with a situation with, of a potentially an oppressive leader. Say, okay, I've biblically identified some things that are of great concern. I've searched my own heart attitude and asked for forgiveness for the things that I'm not right in. Then I just need some counsel maybe. Say, hey, friend, I trust you. I'm going I'm to describe a situation to you, and I'm not describing you the situation to you so you'll think badly about Daniel, I'm going to tell it to you, and then I want you to be honest with me about what I need to deal with in my own attitude first, and then I want you to give me some advice on how to best help Daniel in this area, and, and I'm committing to you that I'm going to do the things that you're encouraging me to do. I'm not just going to talk to you about it and then let it fester, so help me know what I need to do. Get wise counsel from others, a, a trusted source, and then fifth, and this is, this is very important as, as we think about a church. Evaluate whether there are structures in place that make confrontation wise or possible. Now, there are going to be times where there's an oppressive leader, maybe at work or in a church, you say, the structures are not in place to keep me safe as I try to confront this issue. I've, I've talked with some other wise people about it. I've, I've, and I think of a family member who at one time was at a church where every time that a person in the church confronted leadership, they were put on church discipline. And so they, they recognized, boy, this is not a, this is, 
there's no structure in place to deal with this. And so at, at that point, you, you, can't, you can't really go beyond what you've already done. And I think in that case, you just need to leave and, and ask another local church to come alongside you. But then, where there are those systems in place, and, and again, some of this is gray, you, you want to pray that God would, would help create cultures where these things can take place. But a, a sixth thing would be just to pursue confrontation and reconciliation wherever possible and however possible. As God puts you in a position where you're able to, that you would have a heart that desires reconciliation. And then finally, I think you need to have the freedom in Christ to, to, to remove yourself from the, an oppressive leader. I think you have freedom with a free conscience, a clear conscience to, to remove yourself from an oppressive leader, one who's violating the the commands that God has given about shepherding. So, the principle here is, as we think about the tension in 1 Samuel, this, this king is like the nations, he has real authority, and God has to create a way for him to be removed from that. We want to be very careful as we think about the leaders that God has placed over us not to, not to, di- not to dismiss real authority, but to use biblical means of dealing with it. And again, this isn't oftentimes a Matthew 18 situation is often a First Timothy 5 situation where an elder, a, a pastor needs to be removed from positions of leadership. May God give us all grace as we examine our own hearts in these areas, right? Seventh thing about an oppressive leader. Here's a seventh thing to think about. Number seven, an oppressive leader often does great things by God's grace at times. And this, this is what can be so confusing for many of us, right? We've been in We've been in, in relationships where the, this, this person turned out to be an oppressive husband or to be an oppressive pastor or to be an oppressive boss. And it's, it's, it was hard for us in the situation to recognize that because they did so many cool things. And oftentimes, oppressive leaders will say, well, look, obviously God is with me, so I can't be that bad of a leader. God has done amazing things through me. Now, what happens in this text? God had prophesied to Samuel in chapter 9 that Saul would be used to deliver his people, and that's exactly what happens. It says, Nahash the Ammonites, the Ammonites come and they besiege the city on the western side, the eastern side of the Jordan River, and as they besiege the city, they, they tell the people of the city that they're going to make a covenant with them, but this covenant isn't going to be ratified through the blood of animals. It's going to be ratified through the blood of the people. They say, you have to gouge out your right eyes, and we're going to humiliate you and bring disgrace on you. The elders reach out for deliverance, and Saul brings the deliverance, and exactly what Samuel said would happen, happens. Saul calls the people of Israel together, and there's the, the Spirit of God comes upon him and uses him to deliver the people. It says, In verse 11 of chapter 11, the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came in the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul does an amazing thing here by God's grace, but the story of Saul, unfortunately, sadly, is not done. Even though God uses him here for deliverance, he proves himself to be a king who does not love the Lord. It's important to realize that the presence of an exciting or an even effective ministry isn't a sure sign of God's approval or disapproval. God can do exciting things through anyone. 
let's watch our hearts. We can't excuse ourselves. We can't excuse others from correction or put ourselves above rebuke because we've done some nice things or some good things. Michael Kruger again says, in all the cases of spiritual abuse I've read about, there's one word that victims would never use to describe a bully pastor, and that's the word kind. There may be other things, dynamic, powerful, convincing, inspiring, but they are not marked by kindness. Paul, however, is convinced that this trait is a requirement for those in ministry. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, 2 Timothy 2.24. Kindness is one of the most overlooked virtues of the Christian minister, he writes. Brothers and sisters, if we accomplish great things but aren't kind, we aren't godly shepherds, and we must repent, and we must repent quickly. Let me close with a contrast. So much to say here. I know I'm already over time. Again, godly leaders point to Christ, worldly leaders do not. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23. Let, let, let's, let's, let this be a warning. He says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and, sh- and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Brothers and sisters, the, the stakes are too high for us to fail here, and God says he's going to judge the shepherds. But here's the hope. In verse 5 of Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he, that, 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 that Messiah, that anointed one, he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Here's the contrast. Yes, there are wicked shepherds. Yes, there are, are fallen shepherds who are abusing the sheep, but what is the hope? The hope is this coming future, from the perspective of Jeremiah and Samuel, a future covenant king, the good shepherd. It makes Jesus' words all the more powerful when he says in John chapter 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, if you've been hurt by shepherds, here's God's gracious word to you this morning. Those are wicked shepherds, as are all we all, all, but there is a good shepherd to whom all shepherds should be pointing us. That is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one who offers forgiveness for all of us in our poor shepherding. He is the one who offers forgiveness and grace for all of us in our hurting. He is the good shepherd who has laid down his life for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you, by your grace, would help us to have faith in you. We look to the the king of the new covenant. We recognize that that Saul failed in, in so many horrible ways. And as we look at the good shepherd, as we look at Saul, And if we're honest with ourselves, we see more of Saul in us than the good shepherd Jesus apart from your grace. So, Father, please allow the indwelling of your spirit to change us, to equip us, and help us by faith to be the type of of shepherds who care well for others, that the stakes are too high for us to fail. Please protect your sheep. 
We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.